I'm Jennifer Nielsen, and this is Let It Glow, Episode 8, Shedding Light on Sex Trafficking. Ready, set, glow! Welcome to the Let It Glow podcast, a happy place where you'll learn how to let your soul shine and discover new ways to design your best life. I'm your host, Jennifer Nielsen. Welcome to this podcast episode. Today we're going to tackle a very difficult topic, sex trafficking, and how we can help. It is a real epidemic and it's happening right here in Arizona. So try to imagine a young 18-year-old girl who's been a victim of sex trafficking. She has no resources and nowhere to go. She has suffered the most horrific and imaginable abuse in her short lifetime. She has been through hell and is now truly desolate. There are few options available to her. This is the plight of too many young women who are left to their own devices at such a critical and vulnerable time in their life. Today we're going to talk about statistics of sex trafficking, the impact it has on its victims and the community, and what we can do to help. This issue is very near and dear to me, and I am honored to have two very special guests joining me today that are going to help shed some light on sex trafficking and exploitation. Katie and Leah Benson, would you please introduce yourselves? Yes. um, Well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, And so this cause is um, near and dear to my heart just because I've lived that life. Um, I was sex trafficked at 17 and I was in it um, in the industry, sex industry until I was 24. And um, but by the grace of God, I made it out and um, now I'm a I'm a wife and I have two kids and yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So my name is Leah Vinson and I have been involved with CC's Hope Center from the very get go. I'm this is probably my ninth, almost a decade worth of um, time that I've been working on the issue of sex trafficking. Working originally with kids age 11 through 17 and seeing the plight of these kids. After and not seeing any safety nets, I saw that it was really important to develop some type of programming for 18 to 24-year-old. And so born was CC's Hope Center as a result of this, and I am now uh, executive director of CC's Hope Center. Okay, wonderful. And Leah and I met, it's been about a year ago, I guess, officially, and she came to speak at one of my retreats and just was able to share her insights and perspective on this. And I've done volunteering at Streetlight USA, where you're also involved with, again, for the younger girls. And that was really what drove us to this point, or at least lead to this point, to do CC's Hope Center, was there was such a gap in the services that these girls were getting once they turned 18, basically once they age out of the system. And so it was exciting when I was able to reconnect with Leah, and we've just share a similar passion. So we're all here today with different backgrounds and different experiences, but we are here under one purpose, and that's to shed light on sex trafficking. So first, I'm going to share some pretty harrowing statistics according to the U.S. Department of Justice. I found these actually on the Ark of Hope for Children, but as I was doing a lot of research, I found that it's really hard to track and get accurate statistics because this is a very hidden crime, and it's really difficult to get specific 
quantifiable statistics. But one that I did find over and over again was that the average age for young girls to get involved in sex trafficking is ages 12 to 14 years old. Now, if you just stop and think about that for a minute, we all know a young woman that is 12, 13, or 14 years old. And it's hard to imagine at that time that they would be faced with this kind of devastation and this kind of trauma. And when I worked out at Streetlight, I actually did meet girls that were in that age group. And it's really hard to wrap your brain around, but that is the reality. And that is a consistent statistic about the age that these girls get involved in prostitution for the first time. And about 300,000 underage girls are being sold each year for sex in America. 300,000. The average lifespan for girls once they've entered prostitution is about seven years. So those statistics are not very good. And often it's due to abuse. They get STDs, HIV, or they die from attacks during the abuse, malnutrition, overdose, and sometimes even suicide. So it's a very bleak world once these young girls and these young adults get involved in sex trafficking. 80% of the victims are female and 50% are children. And on average, about 15 times a day, a trafficked minor is sold for sex. 83% of trafficking victims in the United States are U.S. citizens. And that was one I found very interesting because so often, just for me kind of being a newbie in this, I kind of view sex trafficking as something that happened somewhere else or in other countries or in third world countries, not right here in the United States. And when you really think about that number, 83% are U.S. citizens. And they come from all socioeconomic backgrounds. And those that aren't U.S. citizens are often brought in with false promises of education or work or the opportunity to send money back to their families. So just to give you an idea, here in Arizona, every day, one child is rescued from sex trafficking and two adults. And you just add those numbers up over a long period of time. It's it's pretty uh, devastating. And another thing to talk about, too, is that the largest group of children that are at risk and young adults are runaways, runaways or homeless American children who use this as survival for food, for clothing, for shelter, and other things that they need. And now let's discuss the why behind all of this. Why sex trafficking? The answer is easy, money. Human sex trafficking has surpassed the illegal sale of arms and is neck and neck right now with drugs as the number one source of profit for illegal crimes. It is all about the money. And here's the reality. Human trafficking is driven by profits. If nobody paid for sex, sex trafficking wouldn't exist. And so just to move on here, I want to give Leah and Katie a time to to talk and to share their experiences and their insights on all of this. But I just think it's important to really think about those statistics and understand that this is really happening. It's happening here in Arizona. It's happening all over the United States. And it it does cover all different backgrounds. And I think that is another fallacy about this, that it's just other people's families or low-income families, or it it, it covers, it's all over the map. And so first, I just wanted to have Katie be able to explain a little bit about her background and how she became involved with this. So Katie, tell me just a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, so my childhood, um, I mean, from the outside looking in, I think it would look normal to what most people would think. Um, You know, I grew up in a household um, 
where we did pretty good. I mean, both my parents worked full time. Uh, we were middle class, grew up in the suburbs. Um, again, from the outside looking in, everything looked normal. On the flip side of that, I grew up in a household that there was alcoholism, there was the mental illness. So I think with all that kind of combined, you know, in, in my younger years, times were probably better. And then I would say around my preteen years, probably just like any teenager, uh, times got a little bit more difficult, I would say, um, growing up and with the relationship, I would say, with my parents. So, so yeah. kind of going back to that. So at that point, your preteen, what did... What what was your what were your hobbies? What were some of the things that you did outside of your home life that were like maybe some of the other kids that you were friends with, or what was different about your life than some of the other people that you knew? So I had a small group, I would say, of friends that I hung out with. Um, they were actually churchgoers. They went to church, and I would go with them like youth group. Um, but we didn't. We weren't a family that went to church every Sunday. Uh, that's just how we were. That's how we were raised. Um, I grew up playing softball. I was in softball from five to around 14, so almost 10 years. Uh, so that was a huge part of our life. We were all pretty much athletes in our family. Uh, so we spent a lot of time with sports. And then, yeah. So when did things start shifting? I mean, so we're talking about around the age of 14, you're still on the outside just living a typical teenage life. Sports, you had your friends, you went to church group on Sundays. Sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. When did things start shifting? Well, I guess I should probably back up a little bit. So my real dad left when I was two. Um, and then my my stepdad came in when I was around three or four. Both were alcoholics. Um, he was an alcoholic and he quit drinking. And I would say that was a time that I can look back and think that when things started to shift, when you stop drinking, sometimes they call you a dry drunk. So you don't really know how to act with alcohol. Um, so that definitely brought on um, some things what um, I would consider or others would consider abuse when it comes to like physical and emotional things. And that's, um, I think, when things turned for the worst. And I also think that when I was younger, I was searching for acceptance and for love. And then that kind of just continued um, throughout my years growing up. Okay, so here's this man that had now come in. You had no relationship at this point now with your real father. So this, he became your father figure. And so that, I can't imagine that transition and I've heard of that before and I've dealt with it in my own family experiences where you remove the alcohol, but you still have some of those behaviors that that needed to be dealt with that are now not being dealt with. The alcohol somehow numbed that a little bit in a weird way. It's just, it's it's such a um, a complicated topic, alcoholism, and then removing the alcohol. It, it just, so that's kind of what you're faced with as around a 14-year-old trying to navigate that. And... At that point, had you been close with your father, your stepfather? Had you been close with your mom? That, or is it then that things kind of started just changing a little bit? I would say it was a typical stepchild relationship <laughs> um, with my dad. Um, I mean, we did a lot of fun things. We went camping a lot. He took us fishing. Like We were pretty active as a family. Uh, went hiking, and he was very involved, and same, same with my mom, but I think when you mix alcoholism and you mix um, some mental illness stuff that was going on, um, it was kind of just a recipe for some things to happen. And that's um, when things started, again, getting kind of abusive. And so um, it got to a point, there was definitely a breaking point where I decided that I couldn't do that anymore and that I needed to um, basically survive and protect myself. 
And so I left and I ran away. And that was around, I was about 15 years old. I was either a freshman or like sophomore in, in high school, dropped out and ran away. Wow, that is young. <laughs> yes. I've had a few 15-year-olds. I've had, you know, have five children. And I think back at that age, especially, you're just, you still don't even know who you are. And, and to survive on your own. So you left without any resources, without any, like, what, what, what did you do? Like, what was your first step when you ran away? Um, I actually went to a friend's house, which probably wasn't a good idea as far as the type of people um, that I was surrounding myself with. Again, still looking for acceptance, to be loved, to be heard. Um, all the things, I guess, that at the time I felt like I wasn't getting at home. And so I was searching for that. Um, I lived, I mean, I stayed in parks. I slept on the street, like wherever I could basically lay my head um, and provide a roof over my head. That's what I did um, for quite a while until um, I came into an organization that uh, was for runaways, for youth, for underage, and they put me into a transitional home. So I had a place to live. So you had a place to live. Mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to mention is that one in three young adults that are either runaways or that are homeless end up in sex trafficking. And from what it sounds like with you is that wasn't your plan. Your plan was just to get away from the pain. And you ran away from the pain. You didn't run into sex trafficking. And I think sometimes that's might be a misconception that somehow that this is that people look out that they seek this out. And in your situation, you found a transitional home. You're just looking for a roof over your head a safe place where there wasn't abuse. And so what happened when you were at the transitional home and how long were you able to stay there? Um, The organization was um, the age group. I think it was 16 to 20 something. I I forget um, the age group, but I lived there for, I would say like a year and a half. um, And they helped me get a job and get on my feet and go back to school for a little bit. But when you're living still on, you're not, you have a place to live, but you're still typically living on the streets with people that live on the streets. And so I just kind of started hanging around with the wrong crowd. So what age were you at this point then about 17? I remember I had my 16th birthday party at the transitional home. So I was around 16, 17 and I didn't make it back to curfew one night. We go out and have fun. (laughs) And I didn't make back into curfew um, a few nights, actually. And so they let me, they told me I had to leave. And so I left and I stayed with a boyfriend that was probably double my age. Um, again, going back to that searching for love and I would date older men. I don't know if, you know, some, well, I don't know. We can go into the, the psychology of that father figure type thing. Right, exactly. Now, were you in right. contact with your stepfather and your mother at this point? Uh, with my mother, yes. But with my dad, I still... Um, there were some things that he had denied that he did, um, later in the years it it came out and he was honest and open about it, but there was still some resentfulness against him. Uh, but yes, my mother would come sometimes and visit the place and see where I'm at and try to have that relationship. But I wasn't open at that time. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I left from there and I went and stayed with a guy and, um, knew right away that it wasn't a good situation. And so I left and, um, that's kind of where my transition went into uh, sex trafficking. So Okay, so you had been kicked out of the trans- transitional home. This situation with this boyfriend twice your age, that wasn't working out. No. <laughs> so at this point, you really have nowhere to go. Right. So I left and hit the streets again. Um, all I had was my backpack, 
And I always joke in my quillow. It was like a quilt that you could turn into a pillow. But I think of that because that's how young I was. Like my mind was young. I was still a child, even though I was at that point, I was 17. So um, I hit the streets and a guy just pulled up, asked if I needed a ride somewhere. And I said, yeah, like I'm not going anywhere. I'm homeless and just not going anywhere. And so he said that he was on his way to Vegas and he was going to have fun and asked if that was something that I wanted to go do. Um, what 17 year old on the streets wouldn't want to go to Vegas and go have fun. So I agreed. And he put me on a Greyhound and sent me to Vegas. How long were you on the streets when he approached you? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like you were there very long after you left your boyfriend's home. Was that pretty quickly that he found you? Yeah. He just pulled up beside me in a car and cause I was walking down the street and I got in his car and, um, he told me he was going to take me to Vegas and we we're going to go party and have fun. And so I was like, sure, like, why not? Sweet, Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> and he would pay for everything and he would pay for me to have clothes. Cause I told him I didn't have much. Um, I thought it was odd that he paid for me to get my nails and my hair done, but at this point, did it hey, cross your mind what he was prepping you for? Or were you just like, this no. is a really nice guy? This is a nice guy. He has a nice car. He's doing nice things for me. I don't have that often. So, hey, this is new. Let's do this. And <laughs> that's I what I thought at that's 17. What yeah. I really want to just, I just want to break, take a little break really quickly here because I think the mindset of a victim is important to look at. And on one of the studies that I looked at, it talks about why you, like, girls like you end up here. And so often it's just that lack of self-love or not feeling safe. And just it just turns into this cycle of you likely wouldn't have been in that situation if you had had a, a healthier upbringing or a stronger background at home or a healthier sense of self-esteem or whatever that is. But just going back to that mindset of what got you to that point that a guy, a stranger in a, a car, that that felt comfortable and safe to you. If you really think about that, that tells you where you're at. And that is actually just really heartbreaking because I know that 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 age group, I have a 17-year-old son at home. The kid can barely remember to take out the trash. And like they live in the, like your your frontal lobe is not even developed. You don't, I mean, there's a reason you live at home until you're 18. And even then, once once you turn 18, my kids, I have 23-year-old, I have a 21-year-old, and they're both come to me for guidance, for help always. And I just go back and I just imagine you at that age, just being in a place where that's, that, that was your, that's what you had. That's what showed up. And that's what you took because that was, that was all that was available. And if you under, you know, really understand the desperation in that, it's just, it's very sobering and it just helps just to paint a picture of why this happens. Right. So, so you end up in Vegas what happens next? You got your nails done. You got your yeah. clothes. I, I, how long did it take you to figure out that this wasn't just free 99, that you're going to have to do something to to earn all of this or to pay for it? So when I got there on the Greyhound, it took a few days on the Greyhound to get to Vegas from Oregon. That's where I was, where I was at, was in Oregon. And um, it's actually very common for people to traffic. They call it down the I-5 corridor um, from Oregon, Washington, down the I-5, either to California or, or Las Vegas. Um, but I got there and it was, um, they just drove me, someone picked me up from the Greyhound station and they took me to this house and there was a lot of women that were staying there. And I just figured it was a party house or somewhere for, you know, people to hang out. And there was a couple people that lived there. Um, and I wanted to go to sleep because I had been on the Greyhound for two, three days, uh, for a long time. I was exhausted. And, uh, I told some of the girls that I was just going to go lay down and go to bed because they showed me where my, where my bed and where I was going to sleep for the next couple of days. 
And um, that's when they let me know that you're not going to get to go to sleep and you have to get up and go to work. And I didn't understand what that was. So I just asked a lot of questions like, what do you mean I'm going to work? And they were like, let me fill you in. This is why you're here and you're not going anywhere. And so um, I just complied to what they told me to do um, in fear of basically just my safety and survival. And you had nothing to, I mean, you had nothing, you you didn't have food, you didn't have shelter. This was it for you at that point. Yep. I just had my backpack of my stuff that I well, came What did with. you call it? Your, your, in my Quillow. Your yeah. Quillow? I even, yeah. I had a teen Bible. I had a lot of little things in there that I had kept with me, but yeah. I just want, I, I, to, to just wrap my brain around that again, that you had no idea when you got in that car that that's where you're ending up. And at that point, there was no, there was no going back. Mm-mm. At least in your mind at that point, you felt like there was nothing else you could do. It was basically survival, how to get away from these people. What can I do? Um, but I think thinking back, you don't picture yourself in a situation like that, nor do you see that type of thing on TV, that it goes that smooth. You see more traumatic um, experiences of how girls get sex trafficked, and that wasn't, it didn't even cross my mind. So you were 17 years old. 17, yeah. Underage. I just want all of you listening to just stop and think about where you were at 17 years old. What you were doing what your life looked like and how you would have fared in a situation like this. Because I did some really, really silly things that you just, you don't understand the consequences so often of what we're doing. And that's often why we have parents to try to lead us and guide us. And yet we still do stupid things, right? And just to imagine as a 17 year old girl that you're just on your own, left to your own devices. And so that was that first night I mean, you got there, you'd been traveling two to three days, no time to rest. You went right to work. Was it in that home or did they take you somewhere else? Like how did, how did the system work? It sounds like it was a pretty, like they had, they had it down how things were to go. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't like in a, in a dungeon or anything (laughs) extreme, um, you know, honestly, thankfully, but it, we were in Las Vegas. So in Las Vegas, um, you know, you have girls that, um, work the streets. You have girls that are escorts and that's what it was. It was escorting companies that they worked with. Um, and so we just took a SUV down to the strip and there was already parties, bachelor parties set up. And that's, we were told this is what you're going to do. And that was it. And again, you, you think, you know, either you do what you're told or, you know, they let you know that um, he knows where my family lived because I let him know. Uh, he knew a lot about me. And so in fear of my family being, you know, hurt or me, then I just did what I was supposed to do or what I thought I was supposed to do at that time. And Um, again, when you're at that stage, you look to others to help guide you and to direct you. And I mean, how long did you stay in that position where you were just complied, where you just went along with this? Did you say you're 24 when you were finally able to pull out of this? Is that about right? Yeah. So I stayed in that home was only for about six months. Uh, one of the days when they left, I was left alone, which was very rare. And I called my sister. She called back. Uh, and thankfully, she let them know I was underage because I wasn't quite 18 yet and uh, that she was going to be calling authorities. And so they immediately called the person that originally trafficked me because since he had dropped me off at the house, he was nowhere to be found. Um, he dropped me off to these people and the original trafficker came back and picked me up. Um, and I was beat up pretty bad, um, to where I was unrecognizable. I remember calling my mom, telling her that I needed help. 
um, and that I was in a really bad situation, but she couldn't, um, she couldn't help me. And there were some times that she did allow me to come back home, but I was still searching for that acceptance, that love, um, and to not, for the abuse to not be there. But every time I went back, it was still there. Now, when you um, say she couldn't so. help you, can you explain that a little bit more? I think she was at a loss of what to do. There was no resources. She reached out. She tried to do what she could once she found out that I was sex trafficked, but there was no help. There was no counseling. There was no services at the time. Um, There were services if you were underage, but because I was aging out, I was going to be 18, their hands were tied. And so her hands were tied. Um, I think deep down she cared. She loved me. She was trying to do the best that she could. It sounds like she was in survival mode too. And she couldn't give you what she herself didn't have, which was tools and, you know, the weather all how to handle all of this. Yep. So you you did go back home, back and forth, but would you just kind of bounce back and forth then from the time you left that home back into, you know, home, back into that life? What did that look like for you? No. So after that, um, I was released. He sent me back to Oregon. Um, A lot of it's... Those few years were pretty traumatic after that and what happened. So there's some things that I don't remember, but I was able to go back to the transitional home because I wasn't um, quite 18 yet. And they actually helped transition me into getting um, my own place and um, helping me get a job. But unfortunately, by that time, I had no counseling. I had no help. So my self-worth and my self-value was none. I didn't have any of that, um, and I felt like this is what had happened to me, and that's who I was going to be. And so I made the decision at that point, once I turned um, about 18 and a half, to go back to Vegas, and that was going to be my life. And so I went actually back on my own accord, on my own choice, um, to go back out there and live that lifestyle. Wow. But at that point, that was your education. That's all you knew. That's how you knew to survive. And so how long did you stay in Vegas the second time you went back? So I lived there until I was, um, until I met my husband. So I was about 24, 25. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I just got tired. I just realized that the love and the acceptance and stuff that I was looking for, um, it actually wasn't money for me. It was the love and acceptance piece, but the money that was given to me uh, gave me a sense of worth. Um, and I realized I wasn't getting that. I had plenty of money, plenty of money. Um, I made a lot of money doing what I was doing. So it was hard for me to leave that knowing that I didn't have an education, but, um, I got tired honestly. And I, I knew that the money wasn't making me happy. Um, there was no love, there was no acceptance in that, in that lifestyle. And since I was a little girl, I wanted to, um, I wanted to get married and have kids and, um, that's when honestly, um, I honestly just prayed one night and said, I'm done. Like I need, I want to get married and I want to have kids and I don't want to live this life anymore. And then I met my husband <laughs> on MySpace. So on MySpace. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for being so vulnerable. I mean, this is just incredible. And I, I just want to point out too, that this is just such a beautiful inspirational story because this isn't always how it turns out, but we can't leave you hanging without giving us a little bit more about the happily ever after part. (laughs) Yes. So I met my husband um, soon after that. I don't do anything um, normal, right? So I had my kid before 
our first son before I got married. Uh, we lived in Vegas, but obviously that wasn't the place that we wanted to be due to my experiences there and um, not a place that we wanted to raise our kids. So we moved here to Arizona to be by family. Um, and now we have two kids. Uh, he works um, from home full time and um, I'm I'm lucky to be able to stay home um, and raise my boys. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm just stay at home mom and uh, having fun with my kids and yeah. Wow. Can I just ask a question? You know, when we're little girls, we always just, you know, talk about what we want to be when we grow up or what we want to do when we grow up. Did you ever have that thought or that dream or what was that for you? Was it to be a mom or what did you see yourself doing when you grew up? I actually um, had a lot of entrepreneurial in me. Um, At like eight years old, I used to buy stuff from school, pencils and supplies, and I would sell them door to door. So honestly, growing up, that was my, I was going to be a business owner. I was going to make money. Wow. <laughs> so I was motivated by money. Um, but, and I would set all my Cabbage Patch dolls, my Barbies and stuff in my room, and I would teach them. And so <laughs> as a young child, I think it was more of a teacher. I thought in my mind, I want to be a teacher. Um, okay. But I think it's just teaching, speaking. That's what I, um, that's what I wanted to be growing up. But yes, being a mother and a mom was, was high up on the list. So where you're at now, what would you tell another young woman that might be in a situation similar to yours or might be a runaway or is in an abusive home environment that's pushing them out onto the streets? What advice would you give them? Hmm. One thing I'll interject while you're thinking <laughs> I know. Okay. is that really, if you look at where you're at now, and I think this would go for many different types of situation, but things were pretty, pretty dark and pretty bleak for you. But now you're living a life that you choose. It's the life that you, that you want. You have a loving husband, you have two little boys. And I think if we can just look at that, that piece of it, the hope and something that you mentioned quite often was that you didn't have therapy, you didn't have support, you didn't feel love, you didn't feel acceptance. I think that is why it's so important that we have a place like CC's Hope Center, because those are the missing components. We There's a lot of awareness around rescuing children, young women, adults from sex trafficking, but what next? And the what next will be the difference in the, the level of success and how they are able to give back to their communities, how they're able to be as parents, how they're able to function. And... The rescuing is just step one, and and the step two is finding them a place where they can not only just have housing, because you did have the housing, you had some preparation to help you get into the workforce, but you never had therapy available to you. I can't imagine. Like for me, I dealt with sexual trauma, and it was it was different, but that level of that broken trust and the trauma of it, I can relate to that. And truly, therapy and a strong you know support system was what helped me through all of that. And so that's what really drew me to CC's Hope Center is because not everyone has access to that. And it's still a freaking hard, terrible road to try to heal through all of that. But I had tools. And so that's really where the passion comes in it for me. And I'm still going to hold you to your question. You can think about it while Leah's talking, because I think coming from you, that would mean more than anything that we have to say to reach out to those girls or to maybe moms that have daughters that are in that situation or just some some real just 
words of hope. But I'll give you a little break here, and we'll go over here to Leah. Thank you so much, Katie, again, for for sharing and for being open with us. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Okay, Leah. You're the, you're the next step. She is here, and we are all here today because Leah saw a need that was not being fulfilled. And that is where, again, CC's Hope Center comes into play. So tell us a little bit more, Leah. Thank you. Thank you, certainly, for having me here today. Um, as I mentioned, I uh, ran the largest shelter in the country for children 11 through 17. And what I saw there was kids that constantly ran, and they constantly ran. But it's not because they've been trafficked. It's because they're normal kids, right? And so they always had a place to come back. The system was always there for them. But the moment that they turned 18, there was no place. And currently, we have a um, Facebook page where many of the girls seek out help. And if you listen to the things that they say, um, or read, I should say, the things that they post it's all about, gosh, I wish I would have listened to you then. Well, that's a normal child. These kids are normal children. And so what's happened is that because it's so dark and ugly and it's the world of crime, these kids are considered throwaway kids, right? They're not salvageable. There's so much more to do with others. But in reality, these are bright kids. You listen to Katie's story about wanting to be an entrepreneur and things that she did. Well, all these kids have the same brightness to them. And the difference is that there's no one walking along their side. And so as they turned of age, you know, he's working with the board and <laughs> we tried to get one of the girls into school and I got a call and she says, now what do I do? There is no system to get her her birth certificate or the common things that you normally would have. And so all of a sudden, we're trying to figure out how to take this child to where she can go to the next step. And there was no system to handle that within the structure that was there. And so then what happens? The kids escalate. Trust becomes an issue are they really going to do what's right for me? Are they going to just let me go? I'm about to turn 18. There's nowhere else for me to go. What happens? What happens is they get scared. Fear sets in. And I'm just going to go back to what I know, right? Where else am I going to go? And so many of them reach out to us. And even now, you know, even after I left Streetlight, I've been mentoring about five different girls. And they're all at different stages. And the most recent one just moved um, into Tempe. And she says, Leah, I just want to get my GED. I want to get my GED because I want to go to college. Right? She's supporting herself. And this is all she needs is someone to help her in this manner. Whereas the next girl, our mental health system is not conducive to someone who is in a preventative stage. Right? I mean, you have to be completely coming apart for it to help you. And so this young girl who really wants help, she can't get help because she was told that she's not addicted enough, right? She's not addicted enough. So there is this, these pockets that exist that of promising young women that really just need that extra help, right? We're not going to help everybody at CC's. It's those that really want to make a difference in their lives. Those are who we're going to concentrate on because we need to salvage them. We need to give them that helping hand. 
We need to be that family that doesn't exist. And so the services that are provided for, for from CCs is more of a case management. So a girl comes to our triage center, and this is what we hope to do and we're raising the funds for, is that from there we reach out to partners in the community. The purpose of CC Center is not to do it all, but to look at the resources in the community and try to utilize those resources before seeking out additional resources. There's enough nonprofits that are competing for dollars that are out there. We don't need to add to that. We need to first collaborate and use those collaborations before we start to tap into other dollars. That truly is being good stewards of our resources in our community, right? So if a girl needs housing, are we going to start a housing place? No, we're going to have a temporary place because I truly don't believe in stereotyping, right? You put a place here and you say, these are for trafficked women. Well, what are you saying to them, right? It, it's, it's a circumstance that they got into. We don't want them to remain there. We want them to get on their feet and on with life. And so the purpose of a transitional housing for CCs is not long-term. It's certainly a short-term, anywhere from six months to 18 months at the most that they'll stay there. But the main purpose is really to get an 18-year-old and to say to them, what's your dream? What is your dream? right? And how can we help that child accomplish their dream? No longer child, right? Because they're at that stage where they really want to do something with their lives. So does that remind you of, you know, your normal 17 to 18 year old that is in your own household that doesn't know what they want to do? Or they change their mind often. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, as, as that teen growing up, they need mentors, Right? They need mentors, someone to walk alongside of them, not to tell them what to do, but to accept them as to where they're at and then to help resource. And are they going to follow that path that you set them on? Does your child, right? No, they bounce back and forth. These, these young women are going to do the same thing, but we need to be there for them. And so that's the purpose of CC's Hope Center. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So... The idea and the goal is to have this home in the East Valley. Is that correct, Leah? That's correct. Can you just explain a little bit more how this kind of works? Because it's not necessarily just only girls from the East Valley that will be servicing. Explain a little bit more how that works. So the girls come from all over. Um, Just like you said, Jennifer, I mean, the girls are transported here from other states. And so it's not an East Valley problem, but it is all of our problems because This girl today may be in Phoenix, but her trafficker may bring her next to Mesa. And then the next time it may be Casa Grande. So, you know, when we talk about whose responsibility is this, the whole state of Arizona is all of our responsibility. Okay. And again, that just brings us back to the reality that this is just far more spread out than we even can imagine. And we only know probably a tip of the iceberg of what's really going on. And so, and the, and like you said, what I appreciated about what you said is that we're going to focus on those girls that are reaching out that want something different. And I just think about you, Katie. If you had a place like this, when you're at that stage where you didn't, where that that man came up and picked you up in that nice fancy car, if you had a place like this that was really helping you prep for the real world, world getting therapy, doing the things that you needed to do to become healthy. That you might have bypassed that altogether. And it is hard to say, but just creating an opportunity for someone like you 
And there's, there's young women right now today that are in that situation to help them bypass some of that further pain and to help them heal from that and find a better life. So back to the question I asked you, Katie. <laughs> what, would, what, would, what would be something that you'd want to share, some final thoughts before we close this podcast? Um, what was your original question? What would you advise or what would you share with young girls that maybe were in your situation as a 16, 17-year-old young girl? Um, what I would share or what I have shared would be just that there is hope. I think sometimes when you're in your teenage years um, or even in your you know 18 to 24 range, um, sometimes life situations tend to seem like it's the end of the world or things are hard. But the good thing is um, what I know now at 33 is that I am loved and they are too. Uh, they do have a purpose and that they, you know, they – they have value and that they they're they're worthy um, of anything that they want. But the fact that there is a resource that they can reach out to and get the the help that they need on their level for the trauma that they've been through um, is huge. And so my thing to those girls that are in it that need the help is that there's help. You just have to reach out and um, be willing to 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 change and want better for yourself. Okay, so really what stood out to me is just the importance of of them them and all of us because I think that at some level we all as women have struggled with that feeling of value and maybe not feeling a value or struggling with our worth. But I think if we all know that we have a loving God, I remember you, you prayed and that you're not forgotten. Even though you feel invisible, you feel lost, you're never forgotten. And you have infinite worth and value, no matter what your situation looks like right now, no matter what decisions you've made in the past, there is hope and there is possibility for something better, no matter what. And I hope you've been inspired today to be a part of this movement to help stop sex trafficking and to, more importantly, help support those young women who've been victims of this. Albert Einstein has this powerful quote that says, The world is a dangerous place, not because of the people who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. So today I just ask all of you that are listening to join in and to help us to do something. There are young women right now who are destitute and need help. Help us light the way for victims of sex trafficking. Help them become thrivers, not just survivors. Thank you for tuning in today, and until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to the Let It Glow podcast. If you enjoyed this show, share the love with a friend. This podcast can be found on iTunes or subscribe on my website at www.let-it-glow.com. And remember, let go and let it glow.